all you hepcats, cool kittens, you guys and dolls, you diesel-powered disciples of cool. This is the Diesel-Powered Podcast, the voice of Diesel Punk on iTunes and Stitcher. I am your host, the time-traveling comic book-loving prophet of pop culture, John Pica, also known as Big Daddy Cool Johnny Della Rocca, swinging solid with me via the magic of the internet from Little Rock, Arkansas, the man, the myth, the legend, the amazing Mr. Wofford. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. And also joining us from Memphis, Tennessee, the daring darling of the skies, Daisy O'Dair. Good evening, friends. And we have got a new edition of Diesel Era Personalities. This is something we started last month. Uh, with uh, Houdini and Lovecraft, and we're continuing it, going to make it a regular series. And at the end of our show last month, uh, you know, Wofford, you mentioned uh, another Halloween tie-in was Orson Welles, and everyone around the table immediately went, ooh, yes, that should be our next personality. Because, of course, he's known best by by pop culture for the diesel era classic war of the worlds the radio broadcast which caused panic in uh, cities and 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 towns nationwide but which is disputed but we'll do more on that when we do something on war of the worlds <laughs> um anyway uh orson wells fascinating character and um and Daisy, we we are uh, looking to you to lead us off and uh, get us started on the topic of Orson Welles and his importance to and his uh, legacy from the Diesel era. So take it away, Daisy. <laughs> All right then. Well, Orson Welles, we if you if you know him, if you mention him to somebody today, they're gonna know him. So one of two things, they're either going to know him for War of the Worlds or they're going to know him for Citizen Kane, which is still used as a measure of great movies. Like they always say, oh, well, this movie's the Citizen Kane of sci-fi or the Citizen Kane of whatever, because that's just what a big deal it is. Uh, he's been, um, he was a young genius and he started uh, directing stage productions in his early 20s for the Federal Theater Project, which FDR did in the, um, let me see if I could get what year that was. It was in 1935 when the Federal Theater Project began. And he was this, this young prodigy putting together these, these productions of plays and they were all innovative and a little provocative. Well, for example, um, he put together a production of Macbeth that had an all-black cast and was set in Haiti. And instead of the witchcraft, you know, they had the voodoo elements. You know, and that, it turned out to be a big success, but for the 1930s, you know, that was going to be pretty provocative. He also, through his um, theater work, he got a job in radio doing productions there. He started with the Mercury Theater. He partnered with somebody else and formed the Mercury Theater in 1937. And they 
started off with a production of Julius Caesar that was, you know, in the 1930s, the late 1930s especially, everybody could see that war was coming. Everybody could see that something was happening. And his production of Julius Caesar actually had, you know, the themes of anti-fascism. It had the themes of um, that modern audiences of the time could easily identify of what was going on in Europe at the time. So he was known as, he was already kind of known as a provocateur, kind of known as a, uh, a young, brilliant-minded director who would, who would try to provoke or shock or make you think about it, which leads us to his career that starts in radio and uh, his productions in radio, including the very famous War of the Worlds. They had that same element to it. Now, if you're going to talk about... Um, but another thing that people know about him in is radio is the voice of a Diesel-era pulp hero. He was the voice of the Shadow. He, Yeah, he was one of the oh, Shadows. Okay. Yeah, but, shadows. but um, a lot of people, I mean, it depends on who you talk to. I personally think his Shadow was, was the better um, Shadow, but, you know, it all depends on, on who you are. He was not the first... Um, but, um, in my opinion, he was the best. Yes, I think, um, his shadow is the one that everybody goes to when they do the imitation of the shadow. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you'll see in, um, you'll see references to the shadow in cartoons. You know, people turn it on the radio, hear it about the shadow, and there's this funny take of them getting real scared. It's always an Orson Welles imitation. So I'm pretty sure that, um... His shadow, just by the fact that he was well-known or better known to us culturally, is probably going to be the one that most people recognize. Yeah, so, <clears throat> you know, uh, you mentioned his his stage directing, his, his, mm -hmm. his, um, his radio work, and, of course, his film directing. He directed... Created and directed one of the top movies, according to the American Film Institute, depending on the year and the people voting, it's either number one or number two uh, as the greatest film of all time, usually alternating between um, Citizen Kane and Casablanca. And... Um, so, you know, he was a, a brilliant filmmaker. He created a film technique um, with the uh, cinema scope uh, lens that allowed you to um, keep a subject in tight focus while zooming in. So, you know, you, we've all seen that, that effect where, you know, an object is the camera zooms in. The, the person or the object stays in focus where everything else is moving around it and behind it in and out of focus. He created that technique. You know, that kind of shot that you were talking about that he established, a lot of um, 
there are a lot of uh, scenes that have either been parodied or copied from that movie that modern day audiences have seen so many times they don't even know what they're from. Like you have the scene of him, you know, at the podium with the camera way down low, making him look like this big imposing figure, you know, and then you have, you know, the famous scene at the beginning with Rosebud. Heaven knows how many times people have parodied that. So there's a lot of contributions that his works have made to pop culture through both radio and movies. Of course, Citizen Kane is his most famous movie. But um, aside from Citizen Kane, he also uh, did a couple of others. But during the war, he was more of a goodwill ambassador to Latin America. And he also did um, war bond drives. You know, he did shows on the radio. He did a uh, he did a show called the Mercury Wonder Show for servicemen, which members of the armed forces were admitted free of charge. I mean, he. Uh, well, you know, he, he did a, <clears throat> he's most famous um, mm -hmm. during the wartime for his USO Magic Act with Marlena Dietrich as his assistant. Oh, you're and, the magic man. You tell us about that. Well, yeah, he, uh, Orson Welles was always um, uh, into magic. He was an, uh, an amateur to semi-professional magician. And um, during World War II, he created a, and he, he always did magic in his films and, and in his, his stage work. He always incorporated some kind of magic, even in his daily life. Um, there's a great movie called Me and Orson Welles that uh, starred um, Zac Efron and um, Christian McKay. Christian McKay was uh, Orson Welles, and it's about the making of his Julius Caesar live production. And in the film, you know, they show Orson Welles using magic all throughout to uh, to uh, break the ice or to uh, schmooze with the ladies and, uh, you know, make an impression. But it was uh, during World War II on the USO stage that he and Marlena Dietrich put together a, um, a full stage illusion act and traveled from uh, base to base with the USO doing that show. And there's some great clips out there um, of, of their work together. And John Wofford, I, I'm sure you've seen his production of the birds and the ducks from the sheet of paper. Yes. I, I have no clue how he did that. Do you? It's been a while since I've seen it, so I'd have to see it again, and I might have an idea. I mean, it's 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 mind blowing. He he does a, a decapitation routine with Marlena Dietrich, which is black art. But uh, man, the the bird and ducks production, holy crap! It was it was pretty phenomenal, and. Um, you know, it's it's through his work in Magic Daisy that I first became familiar with Orson Welles at the later stages of his life because Orson Welles actually helped launch the careers of Harry Blackstone Jr. 
uh, Gay Blackstone, Harry Blackstone's wife and lead assistant, started out as Orson Welles' assistant after uh, he and Marlena Dietrich broke up. Um, but Orson Welles was the cat that uh, promoted and and really helped David Copperfield get his start. And he was the uh, underwriter and executive producer of David Copperfield's first television special right. and, and appeared as a special guest on it. Um, but uh, yeah, USO, he was, he was doing the, the live magic stuff. And there's a great episode of I Love Lucy. Yes, that was what I was going to talk about. Because when you mentioned that he did magic, yeah, I remembered seeing him doing magic on I Love Lucy. But this reading about him in the past couple of days, getting ready for this, that was the first I'd heard about him really doing a lot of magic with the USO and that sort of thing. So that's kind of interesting. I'll have to look up those clips. But yeah, he uh, he did a magic act on I Love Lucy. and Well, and, and the, there's even a... Um... His full stage act is available on um, uh, on video clips. He did a TV special in Germany in the 70s. And um, it's, it's really obscure and hard to find. And it's a little bit weird. But, um, you know, Orson Welles was a creative genius. And, and yeah. anyone who worked with him will, will tell you that's the case. To, to the point that he had a hard time working with other people. Right. Um, and I'm sure, I'm sure you found more info about that. And, and sorry to interrupt. Take, no, 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 no. Keep, keep, keep it going, Daisy. <laughs> well, um, I think we may have mentioned it on the last um, Diesel biography episode. Uh, there was a great... Um, thing about War of the Worlds on uh, American Experience and they actually talked to one of his children and they said yes basically you know my father was so smart he couldn't imagine anybody being fooled by this because he knew he wouldn't be fooled by it and so I guess you know with with creativity and with genius sometimes it's it's difficult to accurately communicate all the stuff inside your head to everybody, wouldn't you say? Oh, I have that problem every day. But um, we were talking. <laughs> yes, I agree. <laughs> oh, okay then. <laughs> but um, one thing I noticed while reading about his um appearances and things is that he um. You know, we know him for mostly his radio and his film work. We know him for the Mercury Theater and War of the Worlds, and we know him for films like Citizen Kane, The Stranger, The Lady from Shanghai. But he keeps turning up in the, the strangest places. And For example? For example, my first... It, my first exposure to Orson Welles was a documentary he narrated in 1975 about Bugs Bunny. Really? It was called Bugs Bunny Superstar. And it examined the history of the Warner Brothers cartoons. And, um, yeah, Orson Welles narrated that. And that, that 
And um, there was a film called The Man Who Saw Tomorrow, released in the 1980s. It was about Nostradamus. That Those two were the first um, exposures I ever had to Orson Welles. So he does show up in uh, some very unusual places. Yeah, well, he, he did The Third Man, The Stranger, uh, F is for Fake. Uh, he did a, uh, the film production of Othello. Mm-hmm. Um, Don Quixote. Exposure uh, to him, he was the voice of Unicron in the 1986 Transformers animated movie. Yeah. He was Le Chief. In the 1967 Casino Royale uh, James Bond spoof movie. And uh, here recently, like Johnny said, I recently saw the David Copperfield special with him performing on it. Yeah, it was a a brilliant piece of mentalism that, uh, you know, he created that, that book test, which has become a standard of mentalists ever since. Um, you know, my, the first thing I think I ever actually saw him in, um, besides that David Copperfield special, the first movie I saw him in was, uh, Jane Eyre, Jane Eyre. Um, right. He was in that. Yeah. And, um, it just struck me how physically impressive he was. I mean, he just, when he was young, he had that intensity this physical intensity, this physical stature. That, yeah, over six feet. Yeah, it was just impressive. That That's all I can say about it. And, um, of course, everything that I saw him in uh, from that era, it just always strikes me how intense and, and impressive and intentional he was. Um you know, my Gabe Blackstone is is a friend of mine, and we've actually talked about uh, Orson Welles and his intensity because a lot of people, especially John in in the magic field, talk about the the focus and the intensity of David Copperfield. Well, who did he learn that from? He learned that from Orson Welles. Orson would um, they would finish a, a tour or an act, and he would turn to Gay and he'd say, it's all wrong. We, we've got to start over from the beginning. And they would, they would start building the show all over from the beginning with new methods, new props, everything, because he was never satisfied. And in the movie, Me and Orson Welles, with uh, Zac Efron and, and Christian McKay, they really emphasized that aspect of his personality in the creation of the uh, stage production of Julius Caesar. I mean, at at six o'clock before opening curtain, he was making directorial changes. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, the cast threatening to walk out on him um, and, and basically, you know, the, the, the lead character he played brutus but the the actor who played julius caesar you know threatens to walk out and orson welles says go ahead walk out i don't need you 
I don't need this character. We can do it without you. And and the the audacity that Orson Welles had like shook that actor to the core and it made him question, you know, well am I really that unimportant? Am am I going to walk away from this and let people say, "Oh yeah, he 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 could have done this show without you." And he was like, "I'll be damned if I let that happen." And so he stuck with the production even though he hated Orson Welles and it became, you know, a seminal work for Orson Welles, not only, you know, a, a key part of his uh, resume, but it became a model for historical um, historical drama from that point on. He was the first guy to cast or to, to imagine, reimagine Julius Caesar or any of Shakespeare's works, for that matter, in a modern setting. For him, it was a contemporary setting of the uh, rise of, of Nazi fascism. But um, since he did it, since he was the first, theater companies all over the country now do the same thing, where oh, they yeah. update Shakespeare, they put it in a contemporary setting. Um, you know, I saw a production of Much Ado About Nothing a couple of years ago that was set um, during World War II in the USO canteen. Um, saw a production of uh, The Tempest that was set in uh, 1920, you know, kind of a Gatsby-ish uh, thing. I saw, I've seen a, a version of um, uh, um, Twelfth Night, which was uh, done as a Western. So a lot of people have taken their cue from that early production of Julius Caesar and um, even Baz Luhrmann with his movie version of Romeo and Juliet, took his cues from Orson Welles and put the characters in a modern setting. And, you know, what makes that so important and so impactful is that Orson Welles really understood that there's value in the works and writings of William Shakespeare, that that Shakespeare was a creative genius. He, he, he had a a knack for language that nobody else has ever been able to really um, match. And, but he realized what a lot of directors realize is that as the decades and the centuries have passed, modern audiences don't understand Shakespeare the way that, you know, his contemporary audiences did. And so by updating it, putting it in a, in a modern setting, but using the original script in the original language, it preserves Shakespeare's work, but it makes it accessible to the, to the masses, to the general public. And that was brilliant. And it had never been done before Julius Caesar. So, uh, you know, and, and if, well, we lost Mr. Wofford, but we are going to forge ahead Skype is not cooperating with us tonight, but uh, Daisy, you were just mentioning off air that uh, kind of along the same lines with Julius Caesar, you uh, you found some interesting tidbits about his uh, interpretation of War of the Worlds. Yes, yeah, see, um, 
he was a very busy man. He was working on lots of theatrical projects. So, you know, the script for War of the Worlds had been written, but he hadn't heard the final recording until no less than 48 hours before the show was going to go on. He hears that final recording and he says it's, it's completely dull. It's terrible. They've got to change everything about it. And so what he did, he was inspired by another play called Air Raid, which um, had aired maybe a couple of months before, which took the, I think it was one of the first plays on radio to take the format of a special bulletin or, you know, one of those we interrupt this story kind of news program um, a drama based upon a news program. And yeah. um, so he took an inspiration from that. And he um, also took inspiration from, you know, you've heard the famous recording of the Hindenburg disaster. Yeah. So when they took. Oh, the of, humanity. Yes. They listened to, you know, recordings of live emergencies and disasters and basically changed the script to make it to make it tighter, to make things move faster, and just to make it seem like it was more real. And um, even though, you know, it couldn't have possibly escalated at the pace that the story escalated in real life, you couldn't have gotten the whole army together in 15 minutes to fight the Martians. The people were, at, people were spellbound, and people were believing it. Well, they say a lot of people were believing it. We really don't know how many of them did. But he, he sure made it sound believable because um, he was very much devoted to realism and getting a reaction from the audience out of that. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I talked to different people. You know, my dad was alive then. He doesn't remember there being any panic. He remembers the broadcast, but he doesn't remember anyone believing it. Yeah, I don't... Um... I don't really think there was as much of a panic as people like to say there was. One thing I think um, you're going to read about it a lot in newspapers of that time, but that's because at that time radio was taking people away from newspapers. People were reading less newspapers and going to this new medium of radio, and people in the newspapers thought that radio was, you know, gauche and vulgar and some strange new media that wasn't as well established. And so they jumped on this story and uh, they may have embellished it quite a bit in their attempts to make uh, radio listeners look foolish. Yeah, quite possibly. Um, <clears throat> you know, and, and yeah, Orson Welles is kind of a, a, a cool cat in that, you know, I consider him one of the great uh, showbiz marketers of all time. You know, when you look at, you know, the great promoters uh, uh, like uh, P.T. Barnum and Buffalo Bill Cody, Harry Houdini, I, I also consider in there um, Orson Welles. He knew how to create controversy and controversy creates cash. Oh yeah. Now, sometimes it was controversy around the specific work he was doing, 
like mm-hmm. War of the Worlds, there was a lot of controversy around Julius Caesar um, <clears throat> because, you know, he was setting it uh, against the rise of Nazi fascism. You know, he was accused of being a Nazi sympathizer and, you know, all kinds of controversy. But it opened to sold out audiences and huge critical acclaim, even though critics were panning it before they even saw it. But he knew and understood that any any press and any publicity is good publicity. Oh, yeah. People will show up to see what it's all about if they hear enough about, a, enough about it. Yeah, and so if he couldn't do that with a specific project, he did it with his own persona. Right. You know, he was well-known in, in Hollywood for being very outspoken. You know, he did not mince words. Um, he uh, was straightforward when interviewed and, and, and spoke his mind, whether it was popular or not. And um, so just by creating controversy around himself as a, as a persona, he was able to, you know, translate that into commercial success. And, you know, when we look at pop culture and, and the personalities who shaped our contemporary pop culture, you know, for me... It's Orson Welles is right up there at the top of the list. When you consider that he created Citizen Kane, War of the Worlds, Julius Caesar, just those three properties alone are enough to set him apart as a an influencer on contemporary pop culture. And you were mentioning in the notes that something I had forgotten until you reminded me of it. And that was his influence on the Warner Brothers cartoons. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, I think uh, people of a certain generation might not necessarily know who Orson Welles is, but they will know what his, when they hear him talk, they'll know that voice because they've heard that voice saying, Pinky, are you pondering what I'm pondering? <laughs> Pinky and the Brain. Yes. Brain was basically Orson Welles in mouse form. Yeah, yeah. He really was. And and um, you know, I loved that show. Oh, I did too. Everything about the animated you know what? We need to talk about the Animaniac sometime oh, yeah. on the Diesel oh, Punk yeah. and Pop Culture because that, that was show like was flat out diesel classic diesel punk. But oh, yeah. uh that and freakazoid oh gosh but we digress yes we'll we'll another time so you know for me orson wells you know i was exposed to him later in his career but i went back and devoured his work and i've become an orson wells devotee and i'm going to share a little secret that that most people won't realize until i tell them this but now that you are hearing me say this, Daisy, mm-hmm. when you see me perform live at Geekonomicon okay. as Big Daddy Cool, Johnny Della Rocca, you're going to see three distinct influences. Okay. I, I formed that character based on Hulk Hogan, Michael Jackson, and Orson Welles. 
you know, if I think about it, I could probably see it. Yeah, and 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 now that I've told you that, when you watch me, you'll you'll totally see it all happening, um, in in various forms and incarnations. But you know, as a magician, Orson Welles for me really set the model, became the model um, of the kind of performer I wanted to be. You know, he he created, he did classic magic illusions, but he he did it in a very theatrical way with stories and persona and characterization that, that really hadn't been done before he came along. Yeah. You know, a lot of magicians um, talk about being influenced by another guy named Channing Pollock. Not Channing Pollock. Channing, oh gosh, that's going to drive me crazy. Channing Pollock was the painter. Um, the magician was... I'm going to find this. Is it Channing? Let's see all the Channings I can come up with. I'll get it here in a minute. Is it two ends? <laughs> anyway. Yeah, anyway, anyway, so, so he, you know, this dude was, you know, tuxedo and tails, you know, classic dove worker. And, um, and, uh, what well, magician Channing Pollock. Yeah, it was Channing Pollock. Wait, I thought Channing Pollock was a painter. No, no. that's Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock. Oh, my gosh. Everyone listening to the show right now thinks I have lost my mind. Channing Pollock was a magician and actor who created kind of the modern image of the tuxedo and tails magician. Um, but But it was Orson Welles. For me, they created the the character of the magician who was really all powerful and knew he was all powerful and had a, a kind of a bombastic arrogance about him. That's one of the things I love the most about Orson Welles. And for me, his contribution to his contemporary pop culture and our our current pop culture is just unmistakable. His fingerprints are all over modern entertainment in every shape, form, and fashion. Now, while I was uh, reading about him, I noticed that his, uh, his fingerprints, or at least his name, even show up in biology. There is a genus of spiders giant spiders native to Hawaii that's called the Orson Wells. Giant Re Really? What, now, that, why are they named after him? I am trying to find out how. It doesn't show, uh, it doesn't say why they named him that. But they were named um, in Orson Wells. They were named for him in 2002. And each one each one, their full scientific name, has a, a reference to one of his movies. Like, for example, you have Orson Welles' Othello, and Orson Welles' Macbeth, and Orson Welles' Bellum. Bellum meaning war in Latin for War of the Worlds. Each one has something to do with his, with his movies. So obviously, whoever named them must have been a big fan. 
Wow, that's pretty impressive. Well, the man has certainly achieved immortality, and uh, if you're not familiar with uh, Orson Welles' work, go check it out. At least you should be familiar with War of the Worlds, a great diesel-era production, and at least see Citizen Kane. It should be in the, the video library of any retro-not Vintologist or diesel punk. And... Um, you know, all of his other uh, films as well. But uh, certainly Citizen Kane is uh, one of the uh, greatest films ever made. Do you have anything else you want to share about Orson Welles, Daisy? Well, anything in particular? No. I mean, um... No. I, 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 you know, I, I think you did a great job covering him. But before before we sign off, I just want to make sure there's nothing that we we left out there. I don't think I've missed anything. How about you? No, I think you did a fantastic job of doing some research and, and bringing Orson Welles to our diesel-powered listeners. And uh, I'm sure uh, if you're listening, you might want to share some of your favorite Orson Welles moments. Um, you know, we mentioned his appearance on I Love Lucy. Gosh, that was... Oh, not only was he brilliant... But Lucille Ball was brilliant oh, on that episode. We'll have to talk about her sometime. Yeah, we will. We will. Um, as a matter of fact, this week uh, in Diesel yep. Punk history, Lucille Ball married Desi Arnaz. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was posted on our Facebook page. Speaking of our Facebook page, if you haven't liked our Facebook page, go ahead and go do that. That would be fantastic. You can find us at facebook.com slash dieselpoweredpodcast. You can follow us on Twitter, which our Twitter followers, Daisy, is growing by leaps and bounds. We have more Twitter Twitter followers than we do Facebook fans, um, really? which I'm not complaining about. But uh, uh, Twitter, we're at dieselpodcast. And you can also uh, check out past episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and at www.dieselpoweredpodcast.com. Before we leave, I want to mention a couple of our sponsors. Um, of course, audible.com. You can get a free audiobook and and or a classic radio show like War of the Worlds or Orson Welles' The Shadow from Audible, free, on us, just for trying them out. Go to audibletrial.com slash dieselpoweredpodcast, and um, you can download a free audiobook or audio program out of their 100,000-plus titles just for checking them out. And uh, it's yours to keep whether you uh, remain a member or not. Also want to thank Blue Microphones for the use of the Yeti microphone here at the Houdini room at the Casa de Cool here in the studios for the Diesel Powered Podcast. Uh, we appreciate them. Check them out at bluemike.com. And for you listeners of the uh, Diesel Punk Comics Microcast, check out our sponsor, Comic Bento. Get a mystery box of comics and graphic novels every month in your mailbox. Check them out at www.mycomicbento.com. 
Now, Daisy, before we go, we got to just mention one more time. The next time folks hear us oh boy. will be from the stage at Geekonomicon, where we are going to be doing <clears throat> several panels. Uh, we ran down those panels last uh, last episode. Um, Steampunk versus Diesel Punk, Diesel Punk 101, History of Diesel Punk, History of Alcohol. We're going to do costuming for Steampunk and Diesel Punk. Um, you're going to be uh, doing a couple of numbers on the Magic Cabaret that I'll be emceeing, and Ava Dahl will be performing in the Bombshell Kittens. And um, we'll be doing a live recording of the Diesel Powered Podcast live from... Geekonomicon um, in front of a live audience. Now, Daisy, when we've done this before, we've we've only just recorded at our booth or at the tables um, at cons. This will be yeah. in front of a live audience, interactive, and Ooh. we'll we'll be talking about um, the the uh, Diesel Era foundations of contemporary Christmas. Mm-hmm. Is that is that a good way to put it? I would say, yeah, because there's a lot of things about the contemporary uh, holiday season, especially Christmas, that do originate in the diesel era. Absolutely. So we'll be that'll be our focus um, at Geekonomicon, and we'll be uh, talking about some other uh, other cool stuff, some other cool celebrities and personalities. It'll be kind of a mashup episode um, of all of the uh, different things that we do. Um, and talking about movies and comics and music and and uh, and certainly our favorite, my favorite season, Christmas. I think it's your favorite season too, isn't it? Well, you know, it is a nice time of year. I don't know if I could say favorite because there's a lot of times I like. Oh, I love Christmas so much. The the music, the food, the lights, the everything, the parties, everything about Christmas, I love. And uh, we'll be talking more about that. At Geekonomicon. If you haven't heard, Geekonomicon.com, go check it out. It is the first mainstream comic and pop con that is doing a fully dedicated diesel punk programming track and being produced by yours truly, the Diesel Powered Podcast, collectively. So uh, looking really forward to that. It's going to be a great time. I cannot, cannot wait. Um, Are you ready? I'm ready. I was born ready. Now, since our last episode, though, we do have to announce that they have added, not only are we doing the um, world record attempt with recordsetter.com for the most diesel punks in one room. That'll be at 11 a.m. Saturday morning, uh, December the 12th. But December the 11th, that night, as part of the Magic Cabaret, we will be hosting... A diesel punk pinup contest. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that. Yes. So um, you and Larry and John and the Bombshell Kittens will be the judges. Woo-hoo. I know Larry will be specifically excited about that. Oh, we're gonna have to. We're gonna have to tie him to the chair. Right? Yeah, yeah, we will. We will. He uh, he might make a new girlfriend or two, but um, that's gonna be fantastic. Now, for those of you listening, if you want to sign up. There will be sign-up sheets at registration at Geekonomicon. Um, we're going to take all all ages, all sizes, all ethnicities, 
you know, all all comers, um, all inclusive, as long as you love classic pinup and uh, and love the aesthetic of the diesel era, come on, we we we, we welcome you, and uh, that's going to be a great time. So lots of stuff happening at Geekonomicon. Um, the final Diesel Punk showdown is going to happen between me and Tommy Hancock. What's that? Well, you know, we, we've had this ongoing feud about um, whether or not Indiana Jones qualifies as diesel punk oh. and and whether diesel punk actually even exists as a genre. So this will be our final showdown. This will be the one to end it all. And uh, you guys will want to make sure you come out and, and check that out. Lots of good stuff. Okay. Lots of good stuff. Yep. Anyway, that's it for this uh, this episode. Hope you guys liked our overview and our discussion of Orson Welles. Um, please feel free to send us your comments at feedback at dieselpoweredpodcast.com. And uh, give us a good review on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us grow our audience. And as always, we'll leave you with this plea. Donate to keep us on the air. <laughs> Every little bit helps. And it's that time of year where we got to set everything up for 2016. You can donate at www.dieselpoweredpodcast.com. Click the donate button. All right, Daisy. Well, that's it for tonight. You want to say good night? Good night, folks. I'll see you in my dreams. Oh, my. And as always, on behalf of uh, Larry and Wofford, who are not with us now, I'll just say swing hard, swing often, and we'll catch you on the flip side. I'll be feeling grim, then he'll pass a grin that only his reindeer see. Santa, what do you have in mind? We'll be on a sleigh and we'll play all day. Snow will be flying everywhere. Santa, what do you have in mind? We'll be dashing through the snow with all the lights aglow, singing carols all the merry we're sipping on champagne, riding down the lane. I help him wrap up all his gifts. He winks at me, I'm on his list. I'm feeling pretty swell, don't ask me, I won't tell. He lets me jingle all his bells. Santa, what do you have in mind?
not making too much noise. Cookies made with sugar and spice, he gives me one. I've been nice. Christmas Eve is through, I think I've got a clue. Now I know just what to do. Santa, what do you have in mind? Santa, what do you have in mind? 